but as to say for us is something for you and I pray um, that you will find uh, something meaningful in this. But before I start uh, reading the scriptures, can I just invite you to pray with me? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, uh, we come before you this morning wanting to not just uh, know more about you, Lord, but to know you more. And so, Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts, that you will uh, transform us uh, through your word, and that uh, anything that we hear, Lord, that is not from you, that you will take that away, but that that which is from you, that you will plant it deep within us and transform us as we seek to serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, this morning uh, I'm reading from Luke chapter 12, and I'm reading from verse 1. Now, I believe you've got the ESV up there. If not, uh, bear with me. Um, I understand that that's your church translation, so you're one of the hip and cool churches that uses the ESV. At Wonga Park, we're still stuck with the, uh, the NIV. So, um, so you're lucky uh, that this is, in fact, the one I've got in my text as well. So it's good. All right, we're reading from Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what uh, you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the rooftops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or about what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now friends, uh, in this passage, Jesus gives us, he teaches us about two different types of hypocrisy. And the first is personal hypocrisy. Jesus here gives us three very clear teachings about what it means to truly love Him, to truly follow Him, to truly be who He has called us to be. And He starts by teaching His disciples about what they should be careful of. Notice in verse 1, there were many thousands of people who had gathered together to start following Jesus. The, The Greek text underneath this literally says there were myriads of people, tens of thousands of people. All of a sudden, Jesus had people flocking to him, starting to follow him. He had attracted large crowds with his message of freedom and of repentance. And yet, of course, he spends most of his time with his disciples, with the twelve who would have to take over from him when he died. Now, in the book of Luke, uh, we're in chapter 12 here. This happens as Jesus had finished his initial uh, sort of ministry and was traveling to Jerusalem all in preparation for his death on the cross. And so everything in this section of Luke that Jesus teaches his disciples is like super critical. 
These are things that they had to hear before he leaves the world. And so he speaks here primarily not to the crowds, but to his disciples. You can probably read this text to say something like, in the first instance, he said to his disciples. His message was firstly for them and only secondarily for the thousands around him. So what does Jesus say? He says, beware of the leaven. The uh, leaven is yeast. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another thing. It's not being who you really are. It's pretending to be good while all the way doing bad when people's backs are turned or when you find a private moment by yourself. Jesus says, beware of this. But notice the term he uses. Notice how Jesus characterizes hypocrisy. He calls it yeast, the yeast of the Pharisees. You see, Jesus teaches us here what hypocrisy does to a person. Being a hypocrite like yeast works itself through your whole person. If you were to bake a piece of bread and you did not add yeast, it would not work its way through the dough. To be, uh, you could be hypocritical about just one aspect of your life, but your hypocrisy doesn't just stay there. Like yeast, it works its way through the rest of your person, where thing after thing after thing falls, and eventually it consumes your whole person. First, perhaps you lie about some small thing, and yet you do the exact opposite. And then you become so used to, to lying, so used to the deceit, that soon no lie is, is too big. But why is that? Because yeast puffs us up. It causes the dough to rise. When the Bible talks about the imagery of being puffed up, it talks about pride. Hypocrisy does that. It comes from or it causes pride in us. It puffs us up and it leaves us leading this weird double life where we take pride in our outward purity, but inwardly we know we are not obeying God. And so why is it that Jesus warns his friends here of this type of hypocrisy? Why should we, his disciples, avoid hypocrisy? He says, because in the end, all will be made known. Everything will be made known. Eventually, the light of revelation will shine on us, on our actions. And it's not just a soft light, you know, kind of like what you see in the movies, in those romantic movies, which I've never watched, um, where, where there's this soft light and everyone just kind of glows and everything's wonderful. It's not a light like that. The light Jesus talks about here is glaring. It is like what you would imagine if you were in an interrogation room, that bright one light that shines on you, revealing all. Notice Jesus says, um, that which you have whispered in quiet rooms will be shouted from the rooftops. Friends, this is why our walk needs to match up with our talk, our deeds, our thoughts will be glaringly uh, exposed for all to see. That is, when the that is what the judgment day brings. Everything we have done will be shown for what it is. We will stand before all literally exposed. You see, the hypocrite lies to cover up their wickedness. They hide behind their words because they don't want their actions exposed. Jesus says, don't be a hypocrite. No matter what you do, your actions will be exposed. You should remember that. 
It won't actually matter how well you have covered up your actions in this life. Eventually, they will out. They will be exposed to the bright light shouted from the rooftops. And so Jesus tells his friends, just be who you are. Don't pretend to be better than you are. Just be, in today's terms, your raw self. That is the only way that God can change us. That is the only way that God can use what is in us to change us if we admit who we really are. You see, hypocrisy tries to cover up our weaknesses, but God wants to change our weaknesses, to use our weaknesses for His glory, to redeem them, to change them into what He wants them to be. And if we keep on lying to ourselves and lying to others, we actually close the door on that weakness and we don't let any of God's light in. And so we are forced to ask this question, what is it in my life? What is it, is it in your life that we don't want exposed? What is that thing that we continue to do even when we say we don't? That thing that we pretend that we've actually dealt with, but haven't. Perhaps we are just nice to someone when we see them, but behind their back we break them down. Perhaps we continue to sin to pursue those things which we know we should have left behind all those years ago. Perhaps we pretend that we have overcome uh, so that we can save face, so that we can look good. Perhaps we put on our Christian face, our Sunday face, you know, how are you going? Everything's great. While all the while knowing, actually things are not good. Friends, Jesus encourages us here. He says, don't be those people because in the end all is revealed. Nothing remains hidden. Now for most of us, that makes us squirm a little bit. What if everyone here found out that I do this? What if everyone here saw what really goes on in my mind? What if every thought I entertained was to be spoken aloud? We become quite uncomfortable with this. And this is what personal hypocrisy does. It starts there and it works its way through us. But uh, Jesus wants to redeem those parts of our lives. And so he reveals to us here in verse 4, he says that this hypocrisy he's talking about actually isn't just personal. There's another side to it. It's not just personal hypocrisy. There's actually perhaps a worse one, which is religious hypocrisy. Picks up in verse 4, he says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your very head is numbered. Fear not, for you are worth more than many sparrows. You see, in verses 1 to 3, Jesus uh, tells us about this one type of hypocrisy where we're simply pretending to be holy while we're not really dealing or ho uh, with the sin underneath. But in these couple of verses, he shows us a different kind of hypocrisy. Fearing man more than fearing God. You see, on the one side, we might be hypocrites when we pretend to be more holy, more righteous, more wonderful than we really are. But on the other hand, we can actually pretend to be less holy, more sinful, more wicked than we really are. We can be hypocritical in denying our sainthood as Christians, of 
downplaying our love for God because we might be scared of what people might think of us, what people might do. You see, friends, today is one of the worst times in the last several hundred years to be a Christian in Western society. Sure, there have been always been people who have scoffed at religion. There have always been those who have looked down on those who strive to be good, God-honoring Christians. Billy Joel will tell us that it is better to laugh with the sinners than to cry with the saints, because the sinners are much more fun. But never in Western society has there been as bad a time as today to be a Christian. We get sued for upholding our values, our Christian morals get legislated out of law. We get booed when we try and share our faith. Some even have violence done to their person or their property because they dared to stand up for the rights of the unborn, for traditional Christian values. And in the face of all of this, it can be very tempting to downplay our love for Jesus, to downplay who it is that we actually live for. Even to do things that we know we shouldn't because we just want to fit in, because we don't want the consequences of people who don't like Christians, because perhaps we are afraid of what people might think. Jesus is pretty clear here. He says, don't go there. Just don't go there. He expects full allegiance to himself. He says, you cannot serve two masters. Jesus says, don't fear human consequences. Fear the eternal consequences. Notice, friends, that Jesus doesn't say here that w- there will be no human consequences. In fact, he's pretty open about the fact that people may well kill his disciples for their love and allegiance to him. And as far as we know, all of the ex- disciples, except for John and Judas, actually died at the hands of persecutors. But Jesus says, don't fear. Don't fear mankind because the worst that they can do is torture you and kill you. And that's pretty bad. And Jesus doesn't sugarcoat that. Dying painfully for your beliefs is not a pleasant thing. And nevertheless, Jesus says, don't fear that. Don't fear that. As I, um, as I was preparing for this sermon, it occurred to me that dying for your faith is simply not something that we tend to think we might actually well have to do. We might be faced with actually standing up and dying for what we believe. And as I was reflecting on this, I found a passage in, in a book I encourage all of you to read. It's called Jesus Freaks. And it's a book about martyrs. And it has this passage. It says, she was 17 years old. And he stood glaring at her, his weapon before her face. Do you believe in God, he said. She paused. It was a life or death question. Yes, I believe in God. Why, asked her executioner, but he never gave her the chance to respond. He killed her, and the teenage girl lay dead at his feet. This scene could have happened in a Roman Colosseum. It could have happened in the Middle Ages. It could have happened in any number of countries around the world today where people are being imprisoned, tortured, and killed every day because they refuse to deny the name of Jesus. But this particular story, though, did not happen in ancient times, nor Vietnam or Pakistan or Romania. It happened at Columbine High School on April 20th, 1999. See, friends, our allegiance to Jesus may well 
cost us our lives one day. But Jesus says, that may be true, but don't fear man, for I shall tell you whom we should fear. Jesus says, fear God. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast the soul into hell. This fear is biblical fear. Now, today we talked about the ten uh, scaredy cat fears, right? You're scared of heights, scared of spiders, and so on. But the fear of biblical fear that Jesus talks about here is a divine mix of awe and reverence for God's glory. It's not, um, uh, and also a deep love and respect for Him. It comes from recognizing our place in creation. It's not a, a scaredy cat fear of God. But Jesus says, fear God instead. Why should we fear God in the sense that the Bible means it? Is it because He has the authority to cast our souls into hell? Is that why we should fear Him? Do we obey simply because we want to stay out of hell? Jesus says, no. Fear Him because He cares for us, because He loves us. Verse 6, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the very hairs on your da- uh, sorry, very hairs on your head are all numbered. Something I find great comfort in. Okay, that was a joke. You're supposed to laugh, right? You see, we fear God, not man, because God loves us. He values us. He values us more than many sparrows. Here we're talking about five sparrows are sold for two pennies. If you read the parallel passages in the other Gospels, we read that two sparrows are sold for one penny. And the idea is that if you bought, uh, if you bought two sets of two sparrows, one was thrown in for free. That's how little value sparrows had in those days. And yet Jesus says, not one of them is forgotten by God. Not even the free one whom society puts no value on. How much more then does God love us who are valued as far more than many sparrows? You see, we are so valuable to God that He did not even hold back His Son, His only Son, whom He loved, as a price too expensive to pay to buy us back. 1 Corinthians 7 says, We were bought with a price. Therefore, we should not become slaves of men. You see, Jesus himself paid the price for us because we were worth more than many sparrows. The king of the universe did not consider his life too great a cost to pay to buy us back, to win us back. What a great encouragement. And out of that love, out of that truth, out of that reality, we live our lives where we do not fear man. Because even though they can kill us and torture us, they actually cannot touch us. In the early days of the Christian church, there was one of these great early Christian bishops named Basil. Now he was tried as a heretic because the emperor did not believe in the Trinity of God. And the emperor of the day ordered his uh, army officers in the, in the town of Caesarea to seduce Basil for his preaching, uh, for what he believed was a heresy. And in our history books, we read this. But Basil was not so easy to subdue. And then finally, in a heated encounter, the Praetorian prefect lost his patience. He threat- threatened Basil with confiscating his goods, with exile, with torture, and even with death. And Basil said, All that I have that you can confiscate are these rags and a few books. 
nor can you exile me, for wherever you send me, I shall be God's guest. And as to tortures, you should know that my body is already dead in Christ, and death will be a great boon to me, leading me sooner to my God. Taken aback, the prefect said that no one had ever spoken to him in this way. And Basil answered, perhaps that is because you have never met a true bishop. You see, that is a man who fears God more than he fears men. How do we get that sort of faith? How do we get a sort of faith that does not fear man but fears God instead? Now, I wish I could say to you, well, just keep on reading. Jesus gives us the five steps to successful faith or something like that. But he just doesn't do that. But he does, however, give us an answer. He says in verse 8, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. You see, faith for Jesus comes from acknowledging Him, but doing so verbally. People have asked in the past, you know, why is it that we do this profession of faith uh, caper? Why can't we just believe and actually never say anything about it? Well, here Jesus gives us the answer. For Him, a, a verbal acknowledgement of the truth that already lives in our hearts is part of the process of making faith our own. You see, there is great freedom in verbally saying something that you know is true in the heart in your heart anyone who has ever told someone that they love them knows this to be true you know you you have this pent-up need to say it to the person and yet at the very same time you're scared of admitting it but once the words are out of your mouth somehow it becomes more real and the same is true of many things. And it's the same principle that applies here. What is true isn't as real until you actually take the step and speak it out loud. When we say what is already in our hearts about Jesus, it somehow becomes more real for us. And it empowers us to do it again, to share it again, to spread the news, as, uh, the news of Jesus again. But what if we, like the Apostle Peter, we're faced with a situation where we're supposed to stand up for our Lord and actually fail. What if we were supposed to say something, but we kept quiet? What then? Well, Jesus has a great encouragement for us as well. He says, anyone who speaks out against the Son of Man will be forgiven. This is a great comfort. But then, like Jesus does, he goes on and makes it complicated. However, when you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Now, what does that mean? Basically, this is a topic that has worried every Christian forever. Um, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Have I grieved or blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Well, the short answer is, if you're concerned about that, then you haven't. N.T. Wright writes on the matter. Now, I know he's an Anglican, but we can cope. He says, if someone denounces the work of the Spirit, then such a person is cut off by that very action from profiting from the Holy Spirit's work. Once you declare that a spring of fresh water is in fact polluted, you don't drink from it. But the one sure thing about this saying is that if someone is anxious about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, that anxiety in itself is a clear sign that they have not. The fact that you are concerned about doing the right thing by God indicates that the Spirit is actually alive and at work at your heart. So friends, take heart. 
you know, we don't have to worry about that if we're worried about that. So we've seen that we need to be aware of hypocrisy, to be the people God wants us to be, to not pretend that we are better than we are. And we have seen that we are to fear God and not men, and that testifying about Jesus is part of making our faith real to us. But I wanted to just finish on by reflecting on verse 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you ought to say. I wanted to encourage you not to fear about what to say. We, you know, we, we all actually have a responsibility to be well prepared, both in season and out of season, to give a reason for the hope we have in Jesus. But if we were to find ourselves in a situation where people are accusing us of, of abusing us or questioning us, we don't need to worry about that situation. A poem from E.H. Hamilton reminds us of this, and I'll finish here. Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release, to pass from pain to perfect peace, to strife and strain of life to cease. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see my Savior's face, to hear His welcome and to trace the glory gleam, the wounds of grace. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart. Darkness, light, O heaven's art. A wound of His, a counterpart. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not. Baptize with uh, blood a stony plot. Till should, um, till should shall blossom from that spot. Afraid of that? Friends, if we die, what does that matter? Is that something to be afraid of? There is nothing that can separate us from our Lord. Neither life nor death. Neither angels nor demons, nor powers or principalities, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. So we need not be afraid. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it is tough to be a Christian in our world today. Lord, we have become uh, really accustomed to the relative safety we've had over the last couple of hundred years. And yet, Lord, we know that we have brothers and sisters who face far worse than us. And at the same time, Lord, in a way, we are not prepared to face the kind of persecution that um, 